0: You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 163. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. You have reached another Local Maximum. And this week, I'm just going to interrupt my marathon of interviews. I did like a ton of interviews that one week, remember? But uh, hey, we need to do a march update. So I got Aaron on here. How are you doing, Aaron?
1: I'm doing well. Yeah, we got to squeeze it in before March is over.
0: Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. And um I and and it it goes so fast with uh, I guess that's like one out of every four four episodes, sometimes five, but usually four. Uh so it, it's if I record five interviews, it's hard to uh it's hard to fit it in there. Um I feel like I should have a math episode or something coming up. I know people like those. Although we do have a bunch of technical stuff today, so that'll be good. Uh, but first, uh, have you? Uh, did you happen to listen to the previous two interviews on the local maximum?
1: Yes, I did.
0: Great. All right. So uh, yeah, I, I thought it was really a lot of fun having Asif Lev on uh, uh, last week, uh, in particular. Uh, it was, you know, cool to hear from the actual CEO of Locals that we're on, and um, you know, I urge people to check that out. Uh, what do you think? Anything you took away from that?
1: Uh, yeah, it was it was interesting to get a little bit of a peek behind the curtain for for where they were coming from and and what direction they're heading in next. Um, th- those of our listeners who are on the Locals will, will have already seen that. Uh, I, I poked you with a question because at, at the end he uh, he mentioned a. You know, a feature they're working on, something that's that that's going to be coming soon, that a lot of people might be interested in, and it turns out that's something that that you and I had talked about uh, a week or two before that, uh, completely independently, and, and so uh, I, I had to get you to 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 check my memory and say you did did we talk about that after you did the interview or or, or beforehand? Um, so
0: yeah, yeah, Do- I was pleasantly surprised that like a lot of the, a lot of the product and. Um, tech discussions that are going on um, at a place like locals are um yeah are, are, are similar to what's going on in the industry. I guess that's not too surprising. But it's so it's 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 always different when you have kind of um I don't wanna I, I hope it's not a bad term, but like like a front man like Dave Rubin, where it kind of sounds like um, well it it's you know it's strange because because um Foursquare you know, we had a, a, a product CEO in, in Dennis, uh, whereas uh, you know, in in um, w- w- when you have someone like Dave Rubin out there, it's sort of like, okay, well, where are the where are the where are the engineers? Where are the product thinkers? And I know that you know Dave Rubin's probably thinking a lot about the product too, but it's kind of cool that you have this guy Asif who's like you know thinking about. Dave almost as, as, or not almost, but as the customer.
1: Yeah. I was going to say that, that, that there's, there's a saying in tech that, you know, build, build the product that you would want to use. And, and that sounds like very much the direction that, that, that Ruben is coming from. Uh, and, and maybe he's less equipped to answer the question of, okay, so how do we build it? And that's, that's why he, he's brought in, uh, you know, people on the technical side to, to support that side of the equation.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, what, what else did we do? Oh, yeah, uh, the, the episode uh, 161.
1: Was with, that the uh, tech censorship?
0: Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Um, yes, yes, yes. And that is uh, with, oh, God, Sam. I forgot his last name. I'm sorry, Sam. Sam <laughs> Jacobs. <laughs> yeah, that one was, um, that one, I, I actually, it sparked a whole bunch of conversation on Locals that I kind of have to dive into. Uh, hopefully I will. But before this episode goes out, but uh, uh, that was, um, you know, (laughs) that was a little bit um, uh, uh, polarizing, like I thought it might be, but, uh, you know, an important voice, an important point of view, I think.
1: Well, yeah, I remember, uh, again, you know, peek behind the curtain here that that we had some discussions about. How how do we present this? Because uh, there was some concern that it might be uh, a, a little a little too controversial on some things. And well, yeah, uh,
0: I mean, it, you know, I, I I've listened to his podcast uh, Resistance Library, and it's actually quite good. Some of the history stuff is quite good. So I don't want to, you know, I don't I don't want to present this as like oh, as this crazy guy came on the show. And, you know, <laughs> know. No, 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 he's actually he's actually very good. Um, but you know, I personally, I actually feel like. I maybe need a little I would need a little more convincing on like using government intervention to uh, to regulate tech companies into giving people free speech I know we're going to talk about this a little later today but that's something that um, <laughs> he's very much against uh, uh, or very much arguing against but it's it's sort of something that I I kind of um, uh, have have not uh, I'm not Quite there yet, or you know, I, I feel like I have some concerns. Let's put it that way.
1: Yeah, it's 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 definitely a, a fraught topic that uh, causes some some cognitive dissonance on my own side.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right. So we have a few topics today. Uh, first, we're going to talk about s- some of these non fungible tokens. Are they a scam? Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, you know another article about reigning in big tech. What a surprise. That's what the one sixties are. The one sixties have now become all about NFTs and like, you know, how big tech has just become (laughs) the evil machine. That's the whole thing. Uh, We're going to talk about self. No, 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 not self-driving cars, flying cars. Holy crap. And, uh, and then we'll end with causality. How's that sound?
1: Uh, We'll, we'll see if we can squeeze it all in.
0: Yeah. We'll see if we can squeeze it all in. Okay. So first of all, I wanna uh, point your attention to this uh, this tweet. There's a rare, a good tweet storm by uh, John D. Waring. Not, not like that it's rare from him, but just rare in general. Uh, so I actually, I, I haven't heard of the tweeter, but he's in the UK with engineering experience and he bothered to look into, you know, when you buy these this digital art, these non-fungible tokens, as, as they call it, what are you actually buying now? Um, I asked that question, you know, first. And, and so first it's like, hey, it's kind of like a certificate of authenticity. Like I own the token from the original creator of that artwork, but I'm, I was concerned that, you know, you're gonna have a hard time charging for that artwork because it's, it, it's freely available online. So why would people uh, pay you royalties? Although maybe there's a way to get that to work. Um, <laughs> but uh, this tweet, uh, which I'll post in localmaxradio.com slash 163 shows something even worse about some of these where some of this artwork that you're buying is, it's not like the actual, uh, the bitmap for the artwork is uh, on the blockchain. That would be very inefficient. Uh, it's usually um, some kind of hash. And so first of all, some of them refer to URLs. Now that's very bad. Uh, <laughs> Aaron, can you tell me why that's really bad?
1: Sorry I'm, to put you I'm on the spot. I'm assuming that it has something to do with. With uh, have you ever gotten a 404? Um, you know, have, have you right. ever tried to go to a URL and it is broken because something that was once there no longer is?
0: Right, right. And that actually happens all the time. Um, have you ever heard of the million dollar web page? This just came out. This just came in my mind. A million dollar page. So this is actually something that was done. Uh, this is something from our generation. Um, or uh, it, it was done in like, I don't know, 2004 five by, by by someone who had just graduated college. And he was like, I have, I'm going to buy a web page. I have a thousand pixels by a thousand pixels.
1: Oh, I do remember hearing about this. Basically,
0: every pixel is going to be sold for a dollar and I'm going to make a million dollars. And uh, and he sold it out. And by the way, when you, when you buy a pixel, you could color it and you could uh, send it to a URL. Um, you can send it somewhere else on the internet. Now, the interesting thing that nowadays, so the the website is still up. You know, he promised them it'll be up forever. But a lot of these websites no longer exist. So if you click around on million dollar page, I mean, let's see,
1: million. Oh, I see each pixel is also a link to something.
0: Right, right, right. Ah. So if you go, oh, it's milliondollarhomepage.com. Okay, I could see the pic. First of all, a a lot of these... uh, a lot of this artwork looks very like uh, early 2000s, which is uh, pretty interesting. So let's say, here's one, increase your sales today, silver member is free. Okay, I'm going to click it, site cannot be reached, you know, what a surprise. So uh, most of these do not exist anymore, which is pretty interesting. I mean, fortunately, that guy made a million dollars off of it, but it goes goes to show now, fortunately, you know, the foursquare URLs are all there from 11 years ago. But it just goes to show that a lot of URLs, uh, they're not permanent. So watch out for that. Um, now, some of them refer to something called, they don't refer to URLs, they refer to IPFS. That's actually the better way to do that. Um, it has this crazy name, IPFS. It's called the Interplanetary File System. I don't know why it's called interplanetary. Like,
1: I, I don't know if
0: there's another planet involved. But ha- have you heard of this, Aaron?
1: Uh, I, I've I've heard that that name before, but I did not recognize the uh, the acronym when we were talking about this previously. So okay, so
0: yeah, so it uses something called uh, content addressing. So that means that every file that you have can be put through. Uh, think of it like a machine, like a function that it takes all the data from that file and boils it down to like a shorter string, maybe not that short, but like that boils it down to like a string that you could put in the URL bar that would be a bunch of letters, numbers, and symbols, and or or whatever that you wouldn't make heads of tails of. But each file that could exist has a more or less unique string because it's in cryptographic uh, hash. Obviously, uh, you might be like, well, how could every single possible file, even like the ones that are Almost infinite in size, or like huge in size, have the same hash. Well, now, some th- there are collisions, but the idea is, you know, uh, the, the 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 resulting string is is long enough that there there, uh, you know, there won't be uh, collisions for quadrillions of years. So, so, so when you um, initially that. said
1: that it was going to shorten the URL. I was thinking like a, a Bitly link, but but there's a lot more going on under the hood here. It sounds like
0: right. So if you if you want to take an image and shorten the URL, essentially using this content addressing scheme and then you do it again with the same image, then you get the same string back. Um, if you take that image and you change a single pixel and you put it through content addressing, you get a completely different uh, address. So, okay.
1: so so it's, it's uh, not, not dissimilar to a CRC.
0: CRC. This, that's one you're going to have to explain to me.
1: Oh, gosh. You put me on the spot. Uh, I, I don't remember <laughs> what the acronym stands for, but... But basically, uh, it—I know at least one place it's used is in, in Ethernet frames. Uh, I'm sure it's used in a lot of other places. But it's—it's it's a way of having a a short uh, sequence of bits that uh, the the content of the message can be compressed. You know, it goes into a function and it puts out this short sequence. And if that short sequence uh, doesn't match the content, then then you know that something has become corrupted. And and like you were saying before, it's there's there's some collision space. You could have more than. Than one input that generates the same output, but it's very unlikely that if you have, for example, a bit flip or you know one or two minor changes, that it will generate the same exact output. So it, it's it's a uh, it's it's an error detection scheme.
0: Right, right. So um, yeah, a, a bunch of systems use IPFS. Um, there is a cryptocurrency called Filecoin, of which I, I own a small investment. And um, this is a cryptocurrency where actually you could use Filecoin to pay the blockchain, uh, I guess pay the, the miners to, um, or, or the people who run nodes for that blockchain to store files for a specified period of time. So I could be like, I have a file, I want you to host this for a hundred years. Uh, I pay you in Filecoin and, um, and uh, then it happens. And I thought, oh, that, that's interesting, so. Um, so uh, and and they use IPFS to host those files. So anyone could use IPFS, it's open, right? Because it makes sense. Like you could host anything. If if an image is hosted on there, there's only one place it could be hosted, and um there's just no guarantee that that it will be hosted, if that you know, if that makes sense. Like if I take a picture of myself, it's not hosted on IPFS, but so I have to host it, but only that picture could be hosted at that address. It's almost like Every, um, every possible picture you could take of yourself is already, already has an address. Every photo you could take with your iPhone already has an address and IPFS waiting to be used for it, which is. So if I, if I have two
1: copies of this photo that are stored in two different places on, on the internet, would, would the IPFS would point to both of those or would it?
0: Oh, no, no, no. So IPFS would take the, uh, well, IPFS wouldn't. Uh, point to a place on the internet, it would just um, basically, you would call that, um, you know, you would call the photos hash on IPFS, and the photo would come out if it's hosted. And then the the, the, the person hosting it can prove, hey, this photo gets, um, you know, gets stamped down to this hash. So I can prove to you that, yes, this photo is what's here.
1: So So you can retrieve... The, the real photo, but it could be in multiple places simultaneously.
0: Oh, sure. You could have multiple people hosting uh, the gotcha. same file in IPFS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. IPFS seems like it's a better way to, um, to store these pieces of digital art. But, you know, so, so there, are, there are now a few pitfalls. First of all, you want to make sure that the, uh, the IPFS file uh, that stores your digital art is not itself a URL. Like it'd be like, here's the IPFS, and then you go there and it says, it's it's actually not an image, it's just a URL to somewhere else, so that, <laughs> you're at the original problem. Secondly, it does not guarantee you know, that anyone is hosting it there. So if you own this digital art, you should also keep an, a copy of it in case you know nobody else hosts it or nobody else uh, copies it. So there's one problem of anyone can copy it, but then there's another problem of, you know, there's no guarantee anyone will, cop, will, will, will copy it or host it. So if you own the artwork, you better control um, several copies of it because it's basically like, you know, what if you have the certificate of authenticity for a painting and then you lose the painting? It's no good. Um, likewise, if you lose the certificate of authenticity, it's no good
1: makes makes me think of the uh, the internet archive that that may, maybe you should make sure that there's a there's a copy of it there since they seem to be somewhat reliable.
0: Yeah, yeah, but even then even them is you know yeah, not, there's not no guarantee. guarantee they'll be around.
1: I, mean, I, I see I see a lot of parallels here to uh, to gold. Um in that you know the the most secure way it, of of uh, possessing gold is to literally have the gold bars in your you know in your own home in your own safe uh, and then then a step down from that would be you have your gold bars in somebody else's safe, you know, at a safe deposit box the bank. And then there's another step away, which is I have a slip of paper that says that it's redeemable for gold bars. Uh, right. And then you could take another step which says I'm, I'm invested in a fund which supposedly owns some gold bars. And you take enough steps away and it becomes much easier for someone to in, in the intervening chain to go bankrupt and all of a sudden you have a worthless piece of paper.
0: It's the same thing with, with cryptocurrencies too. Yeah, and
1: I, I suppose, yeah.
0: By the way, it's it's not, you know, there are people who say you have to own gold in your safe or you have to own, you have to own your own, pri- you have to control your own private keys and cryptocurrencies. There are also reasons not to. And actually, I'm going to talk about that. With uh, a future guest, which I'm going to spoil now, is Peter McCormick of the "What Bitcoin Did" podcast uh, in a upcoming episode. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, but in this case, with digital art, it costs you almost nothing to keep a copy of the digital art, even if somebody else is also, um, you know it also has it so it's a little yeah, the, bit different from gold the, in that... the big
1: advantage to to digital yeah. art is that it it there it it, it it almost counter to the 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 fact that we're referring to it as non-fungible. Uh, you can have multiple copies of it stored in multiple places and it does not decrease the security it's not like you have to split your your hoard of gold uh, between multiple s- storage locations you can have in this metaphor, the same bar of gold in multiple different places, without having to give anything up there.
0: Yeah. Uh, yes. The 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 art itself, the file itself. Now the uh, the the private key that you have that proves that you own the art. That's another question because if somebody else has that, then they could take your NFTs. So sure. Yeah. <laughs> so that 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 comes back to how do you store your cryptocurrency with yeah, NFTs? Is the same thing.
1: There's always a bottleneck somewhere.
0: Yeah. All right so um i hope that makes sense to people uh next one is oh this is an article that uh, that you sent me we've already talked a lot about so-called big tech i don't know which one this is talking about oh yeah twitter facebook google youtube all the usual suspects the last two episodes have been about taking on big tech actually so it's not surprising that we're still talking about it so uh, this article that you sent me is interesting. Well, tell me a little bit about it. Um, it's interesting because it harkens back to something that I, I talked about in episode nine, and you recognize that, which uh, I'm very impressed.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I was reading through this, and and actually, funnily enough, so what's um, it called? Uh, so so I received this in, in a publication called uh, in, I believe it's pronounced Imprimis— um, Okay. From from Hillsdale College, uh, which don't don't ask me how I ended up on their mailing list, but I but I did. Uh, And, and it's not just a mailing list. Uh, (laughs) I received a physical copy of this newsletter. So I was, I was actually reading this on a glossy piece of paper. Um, And, and it was, I think, literally the last paragraph or two um, that, so the, the, the general discussion was, you know, something needs to be done. Big tech is becoming too powerful. You know, they, they have control of the modern uh, town square. Uh, and so we can't just write it off as well. They're private companies; they can do private company stuff, and we can't stop. Yeah, them. we've um, heard, it. we've heard. It. So but, it's
0: just, it's called who is in control that needs to Reign in big tech. Yeah. yeah,
1: but but when it got to the very end, one of one of the conclusions that the author drew, or or possible solutions that he proposed, was was very reminiscent of of something that that you had discussed uh, in in a much earlier episode. And and so I I I, I thought, oh, this it, it sounds. It almost sounds like you listened to an episode of your podcast and took the words right out of your mouth.
0: <laughs> Where are my royalties? <laughs> we don't have the NFT. See, that's that's why. So, all right. Let, uh, why don't you read the, the key quote there?
1: Sure, yeah. So it's, uh, our, our ultimate goal should be a marketplace in which third-party companies would be free to design filters that could be plugged into services like Twitter, Facebook, Google, and YouTube. In other words... We would have two separate categories of companies: those that host content and those that create filters to sort through that content. In a marketplace like that, users would have the maximum level of choice in determining their online experiences. At the same time, big tech would lose its power to manipulate our thoughts and behavior and to ban legal content, which is just more extreme, which is just a more extreme form of filtering from the web.
0: Right. Okay. So, um, it essentially it would be like, yeah, if you are. One of these platforms, uh, your only goal to, should be to sift through legal and illegal content, um, not to be censoring the, the legal content, uh, which is sort of what what locals does and, and leaves the filtering of the legal content, which you have to do because you know not it, it, just having all the content together uh, leads to a lot of a lot of crap, which we see on Twitter. <laughs> uh, it's amazing as much as they. Uh, as much as they censor and filter and remove and, and and, and shadow ban, um, most of the comments are still just um, very low calorie or high, <laughs> wait no, high calorie, empty calorie. That's what I want to say. Um, low, but
1: low, low nutritional value.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Low information content, or perhaps negative information content. Um, but uh, that that was sort of my idea, and I was like in 2008. I said, hey, look. If you want to subscribe to, like, the New York Times filter, you could do that. Maybe it'll be run by the New York Times, and I have a good idea of what I'm going to get from that. Or I can maybe go to a filter that's maybe a little too permissive, and I get kind of everything. Or maybe I just, you know, I I find some other group that seems to be really good at it and seems to, like, um, you know... uh, uh, promote the things that sort of make me think or catch my interest and then i'll do i'll do that one and so yeah there could be sort of a um uh, a competition among the filterers, um and then they're kind of uh, uh federated you know uh, uh compete and maybe maybe each filter company can work across every service you know if I'm a filter company, maybe I'll make one for Twitter. I'll make one for Facebook. I'll make one for Google, et cetera, or for, for YouTube, et cetera, et cetera, you know? And so, um, you know, that competition would, would give people choice. I think it's a very interesting idea. Um, and it's sort of, I mean, you know, perhaps it could be implemented on something like Mastodon. I'm not sure, um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think that would make a lot people a lot happier.
1: I can't remember if I mentioned this way way back in episode nine, but it, it makes me think of uh, Slashdot, which I I haven't been on there in years. But mm, uh, me neither. They they used to have a feature where you know there's there's the standard feed, um, but you can flip a little switch and it turns on the fire hose, which which is basically the the unfiltered feed. So you get to see things that you know haven't been moderated and haven't met a threshold for you know a certain number of upvotes, and you know you you can opt into that. Uh, and that's that's a a, a simplified version, I, th- I think, of the kind of concept you're talking about here, that you, you wouldn't want the choice necessarily to be a binary, you know, our filtered feed or no filter, uh, but the ability to turn off the filter means that you, you could, in theory, then apply an alternate filter onto it.
0: Right, right. Um, there's this other quote here. Um, Even more troubling, I think, this is now quoting from the article, are the invisible things that these companies do consider quality ratings. Every big tech platform has some version of this though some of them use different names and i thought yes i've worked on a quality rating <laughs> at foursquare <laughs> i've actually looked worked on a, a few of them for for foursquare tips and reviews but um, fortunately the uh, as i've said you know in previous episodes the foursquare data set is not as contentious um you know there's just a lot of just kind of useless reviews there i mean you know, we filter out people who look like they were banging on the keyboard and uh, people who just say things that don't make any sense and and things like the spam, you know, people saying, call this number. Um, But even in Foursquare Tips, like we've had discussions about this uh, back in the day when we were focusing on the consumer product, that it was like, yeah, there are definite areas of gray area and disagreement as to what makes a a good tip. And then, of course, venue quality too, like, you know, rating the – Rating the actual places was was another interesting one.
1: I, I don't want to dig too deep into uh, the the Foursquare uh, uh, algorithm here, but uh, when do these quality ratings do they apply uh, in a a uh, a a what's the proper term here? Uh, an an individual manner to to each review, um, it, it's independent. That's what I'm looking for, an independent manner. Or do you? Uh, build a, a profile of a user, and, and you identify, oh, this, this user is a low-quality user, and so we're going to discount their their reviews because they have a history of, of not providing useful information. Uh,
0: so we do take the author into account, but I don't think that it is um – I don't think it's going to do what 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 you say like that. Not, not I, as harsh I think, as I as I stated it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you take into account, for example, the, the language that the user tends to speak or to type in. Um, so that's uh, that that's one. You want to show people things in their own language first.
1: Okay, um, yeah, I, I know you've you've talked about the language model uh, on a couple of episodes before.
0: Yeah, and do we know if a user is low quality? Uh, I don't remember, but I don't. I, I'm pretty sure each tip gets its own unique rating, and then maybe a user can have a, sort of a slight bump if I remember correctly, or it's possible not. But uh, I'm pretty sure the quality score of the tip is the main thing, and and I think that the user is either not taken into account or barely taken into account. Um, but then again, it was this was a different time. This was back when we could sit down and be like okay, what is what are our users looking for? They want to know, you know, they want good reviews uh, as in accurate reviews. They want, like, cool things to do, like, like fun things to do at a place, like things to order, or if you're at your park, like, what should you check out? Or if you're at a museum, you know, what exhibit should I check out? Um and so it was like, yeah, that's what our users want. They want something in their own language. They want something that is, is not, like, completely broken English so you can't understand it. You know, they want it to be reasonably well-written, but maybe not too well-written, so it's, like, too long. You know, so it's like, okay, these are what our users want, and this is how we're going to filter th- for it. Another one is, like, recency. You know, things, you know, created more recently um, matter as well. So that was, it was... There was gray area. There was area of disagreement, but it was apolitical. Hmm. Um, whereas all of these, um, and and what does apolitical really mean? I'm not really sure, but I feel like there's there's a different thing today where it was, it's like, it's not the product teams, uh, it's not in the hands of the of the product team. It, it's not in the hands of the engineers the the product managers the designers and all of those people it's like it's more in the hands of like the the trust and safety uh commission and the lawyers and things like that of these companies and the the pr of these companies rather than the people who care more about the product that's what i mean
1: well i'm sure that there's a, a, a long conversation that we could dive into off of that but but not today
0: yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I've been complaining about this for a long time. I mean, it could be the the tech industry just went down the path of ad-supported uh, large social networks. And um, that worked for a certain period of time, grew to a very large size, size. And now that business model has kind of run its course. And now as these companies optimize their profits more and more, it's sort of... Um, it's sort of decreasing their effectiveness more and more, and we're sort of ready for the the paradigm shift, as I've been talking about for a long time. So that's just another way to look at what we've already been talking about. Uh, So yeah, okay, I'll I'll finish on that note. Um, All right, so this next article, I was like, no way this could be real. Because (laughs) when I moved to New Hampshire, we did episode 158, uh, entitled Live Free or Die when, when I moved here to New Hampshire, and I was like, yeah, everything's legal here in New Hampshire, but I didn't know that this was legal. Uh, in in uh, June of last year, New Hampshire became the first state to um, legalize flying cars on the road, so we now have flying cars in New Hampshire. Now, before I started getting excited, I'm like, oh, man, I haven't seen one yet, so they don't really exist. That's why, uh, but they are legal if you get your hands on one. Um, now, the law called the, uh, what's the, it's called the Jetson's Bill. I guess it's called the Jetson's Law. Um, you actually, this is the lame part of the law. You're not allowed to take off on the road. You actually have to drive to the airport to take off. But I have a feeling that some people will break the law in some of those <laughs> long, flat roads up in the country.
1: Well, it, it, it depends on how you define airport, because uh, there there are, even in, even in Massachusetts, there are a number of, uh, improvised runways that that uh, meet some sort of requirement for being a runway that that are uh, definitely not you know tower operated
0: right so these are essentially small airplanes that you could drive on the roads right i mean like so you can't drive an airplane on the road right so how they not, not
1: easily yeah so so uh, if you
0: want to get an air, airplane from one airport to a nearby airport you literally have to fly it
1: right and 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 part of the part of the 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 I guess the opposite of a value proposition of, of owning a small private air, airplane is that okay yes it, it can make travel from point A to point B where point A and point B are two airports uh, a lot faster because you can you know go as the crow flies and you can go at you know for for uh, general aviation you know small engine aircraft you're, you're generally looking at upwards of 100 miles an hour so so between those two things you can go a lot faster than uh, if you were to do, do that same drive in a, in an automobile uh, the problem is though now you're at an airport in a, new, a new, you know, new region, new location. Uh, and unless the place you wanna go is the, the you know, rinky-dink burger joint at the airport, uh, now you need to get a car. And, right. and that's, that's got some hassles with it. You know, either you gotta rent a car or you need to have a friend to come pick you up or you need to keep multiple cars at airports across the country, at which point, why are you flying your own airplane? Uh, so it, it, it comes with some challenges to make it a, a practical method of getting around. Uh, And, and this in theory, uh, would, would bridge some of that gap because you can drive from your garage to the airport, take off, land at another airport, and then drive to, you know, the place where you're having a meeting or to the, uh, rental, uh, you know, house that you're staying at for, for your vacation or, or, or whatnot. Um, so, so that was the concept there. Um. And and this is not something new, you know. This is an idea that's been kicking around for almost as long as airplanes have been a thing. Yeah. But but as 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 they pointed out in at least one of the articles that we talked about, uh, there there's there's kind of uh, uh, requirements pulling in opposite directions for what makes a safe vehicle on the road and what makes a safe uh, vehicle in the air. Um, you know, like kind of- all
0: those people on the road in Massachusetts. Do you trust them? uh in the sky i don't even trust them on the roads
1: well i at at this point uh one of these flying cars would require a pilot's license anyway so Ah. ostensibly you you wouldn't have any less trust in these people than you would in the people who are already flying around in the air
0: come on Um, live free or die
1: what what would worry me if i owned one of these is uh some some crazy person dinging my car you're getting me in a fender bender and it's bad enough when it's my I don't know my, my $30,000 uh, you know regular medium nice uh, car it's another thing when it's my $300,000 uh, aircraft and now that you've dinged it I don't know if it can fly again and so I'm going to have to bring it in for, for an inspection that you know may, may involve tens of thousands of dollars of repair oh, to, to like get it nightmare. back to being safe and airworthy so so that's, that's one of the biggest uh, hassles is uh, not 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 just being safe on the road for you, but, but you're probably being not going to enough.
0: You're probably not going to parallel park it in the city.
1: Yeah, that that's going to be something you're going to want in a garage.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can afford the flying car. You can afford the garage. So there's a company that that's actually working on these, right? It's called um, oh shoot, what's it called? It's called we had it so, written so, down here.
1: So so there yeah. are a couple of them. There's there's Terrafugia, um, right. which is based out of, of Massachusetts, um, uh, and and uh, actually uh, they they got bought out or, or acquired by a Chinese company a few years back, uh, and it sounds like they're making a pivot away from this space. That they they have a prototype in the in the self driving car market space, but they're they're it sounds like they're pivoting towards uh, more the the uh, the urban air mobility market. Um, but but there's a, uh, a company out of the Netherlands and I think a company out of either uh, Washington or Oregon who, who's who's doing uh, stuff in, in, in the similar uh, flying car space.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to think about, but I don't think we're going to see, um, you know, people flying their cars anytime soon. Uh, probably not until long after they're they're self-driving their cars, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, yeah, but, I, I, I
1: think the, the air taxi, urban air mobility thing is is much more likely to catch on in a big way uh, be, before we start seeing uh, a significant number of, of uh, flying cars that, that are, you know, consumer owned. Um, I, right, I, right. So
0: you're saying they might be like air taxis or something like that.
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't think we're going to see uh, the, the kind of adoption pattern that we saw with, with like Tesla and electric cars uh, happening with flying cars anytime soon? Yeah, oh, yeah. That's.
0: A, I mean, what's scarier, a flying car driving past, or a or a, or a driverless car driving past? What would make you more nervous?
1: Well, the 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 big next step once they get these uh, these air taxis approved, um, which which do vertical takeoff and landing, is there. There are at least a couple of companies that are designing them that they're they're not even building them with plans for a pilot. Uh, so so are make... these. Self-fly. So
0: are these kind of like helicopters then or something else?
1: Uh yeah, they there's there's a lot of tilt rotor design involved in it uh, but but the 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 design intention is that these are going to be vertical takeoff and landing so you you don't have to have a long runway. Um Well, like but, a helicopter. Y- 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 in that sense, yeah. It's it's it, it doesn't have the the one giant rotor that a helicopter has. It's going to have a lot they they generally have uh multiple small uh, rotors. Oh, okay. I see. Um but 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 the kind of the, the, the flight profile is, is much more similar to that. And, and some of them actually have um, rotating engines so that they can uh, take off like a helicopter and then transition to flying like a a, a regular aircraft.
0: I see, I wing. see, I see. Um, okay, cool. Um, yeah, anything else on this before we, uh, before we moved on? This is our first flying car episode. <laughs> That's exciting. Now, this is not, look, like, I mean, sometimes this thing comes up in the news. It's come up in the news, you know, years ago, but um, I don't know. It, I was just like, it, this one hit close to home and I was like, whoa.
1: Yeah, I, I think the way to, 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 to view this is that it's, it's not dissimilar to what we've seen in some of the Western states uh, where they've uh, created special zones and special rules and laws that uh, allow or encourage uh, the self-driving car development work to be done there. So by New Hampshire passing this law, uh, it, it opens the window to to make this a, a, a more viable product for the people who are willing to invest in it. Uh, gotcha. And, and we'll see where that goes, that, that maybe they'll be the first of many, or maybe this will remain a weird thing that just New Hampshire does.
0: Okay, yeah, yeah. All right, so um, finally, uh, I'm also going, so all the articles will be linked to, on the show notes page, localmaxradio.com slash 163. The final one is... I'm going to link to uh, this is a pretty good, actually a very good article on a uh, on an academic paper, and so I, I thought the article did a did a very good job of kind of explaining this. This is from Tech Talks, uh, "Why Machine Learning Struggles with Causality" by Ben Dixon, March 15th, uh, 2021. And uh, you know I've talked about causality on the show before. I've worked on causal models. Uh, the last one I talked about it was in episode 31 with uh, Shirin Mojarad on. Um, on um well she was doing causality on uh products for education you know uh, you know do these things cause learning <laughs> and i'm doing it for ads do these things cause uh, buying or or in my case uh going to a place um so when it comes to these more complicated ai models uh causality is actually it causes a big problem for them and it is it's sort of why it's sort of where they fall short now, even on the deep learning models. So if I could just quote for... And it's it's something that is very much needed uh, to get a grasp on for something like self-driving cars, where the car needs to know, well, if I do this, then X, Y, and Z will happen because, of, because this is how physics works. Or, you know, um, this animal or this person or this vehicle in front of me uh, will do... Will respond this way if I do that, or they'll they'll respond this other way if this other vehicle does does something. So it's it's sort of like um, it's sort of important to uh, to, to make sure that it, it knows all that because if it doesn't, if it's just kind of a series of instructions, even if it knows these learned these instructions from millions and millions of examples, you know, having these um, causal models in its model, I guess, having, having these, these um, causality results in its model will allow it to um, navigate through these kind of one-off situations a lot better. And when it comes to driving or anything in real life, all situations are, are essentially one-off. You've never been in the same exact situation twice, only similar situations. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, let me just read a few things. Uh, lack of causal understanding makes it very hard to make predictions and deal with novel situations. Uh, It's very good to like suss out the exceptions to the rule because, you know, machine learning models are very good at coming up with the rules, but then it's like, you know, it's not, it's not always very good at coming up with finding like, what are the rare exceptions? But if you know how the universe works, it's easy to, it's easy to figure out that exception. I'm sort of like, you know, trying to figure out an example, it's like, well, objects fall, but if it's a if it's a bird, it's probably not just going to fall the same way as, uh, as a, a tennis ball does, you know, for example. Um, so, okay, it, 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 when I first read it, it reminded me of Judea Pearl's work, uh, The Book of Why on Causal Language, uh, which I read, uh, and it says, here in the article, the paper contains references to the works done Uh, by Judea Pearl, a Turing Award-winning scientist best known for his work on causal inference. Pearl is a vocal critic of pure deep learning methods. Meanwhile, Yashua Bengio, one of the co-authors of the paper and another Turing Award winner, is one of the pioneers of deep learning. You need less examples when AI has an effective understanding of causality. Um, And the simple example they give in the article is, uh, you know, they're building the models that first attempt to identify the causal structure. And then, or, or my, my simple explanation actually is like, so when I was doing something like attribution or when you're doing experiments, you already have the causal, causality in mind. Like mine was ads cause buying or smoking causes cancer, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, but in, w- when it comes to these large... AI models, you don't know what causes what, so it's like your hypotheses are uh, your hypothesis space in the Bayesian sense is you know what causes what, and you're trying to figure that out. So it's sort of it builds these causal models first, then it sort of tries to factor them out. You know, okay, if I if I know what causes what, then I could kind of factor that out in my training set, and then I could sort of uh, f- like if if I know gravity causes falling. Then I could kind of look at what are the exceptions of that and try to learn that. But if I don't know that, then I'm kind of all over the place. So um, that's I know it's maybe wishy-washy. We don't have that much time, but um, that is a very active area of research in machine learning that uh, is is going on. And so that's sort of um, that sort of an area that uh, you know when when someone talks about like deep learning, deep AI. It's often important to talk about, you know, where does causality fit into this? Let me see if I get the the name of the paper uh, before we before we head out. Uh, well, so the paper is called, uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead.
1: I was just saying, while while you're looking for that, what what what's the takeaway we can we can put into practice here? Is it is it that we we should be more skeptical of uh, when they talk about using AI and 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 machine learning? uh is is there something that we can put into practice about about causality yeah. in our daily lives here or or is this just a a thing to watch
0: i i think it's well it, it is a thing to watch but i think beyond that i think that there's a connection between causality and intelligence and and human intelligence that uh we should not take for granted and so um it's something that right now uh, machines are still very bad at. They're going to get better in the future, and so what does that mean? Does that mean that we then approach human-level intelligence, uh, which we don't don't yet have? Uh, but um, but uh, it's it's definitely it's so for those of you who are like you know engineers and who study this stuff, it's definitely you know an active area of research. For some of for, for some of you who would just like to follow the, the tech news, which is probably most of you on this. Uh, who are listening to this show? It's sort of something to ask yourself when you're you're reading these articles, um, and to sort of think about you know, hey, when it comes to my Google Photos making a mistake, or when it comes to self-driving cars making a mistake, uh, it's probably something in the in the it's probably a causal deficiency. they will put it that way.
1: So that that makes me very curious to see that because because humans we we absolutely have uh, areas where our causal uh intuition our causal reasoning falls apart yes but we're very good at it i wonder how much um as as artificial intelligence develops a a better understanding of causality will they uh will they adopt our the kind of our, our same contours there or will they have a distinct uh you know, a- areas at which they are better at determining causality than we are, uh, and areas at which they they are inferior to, to human intuition there.
0: That's very interesting. So we have a very, our visual cortex is very complex. We have a very innate um, handle on causality when it comes to like physics here on Earth and yeah, Images, the, the classic, and, you
1: know, throwing and catching a ball. That that we don't we don't do math yeah. to do that, uh, but no. but we we have a you know we, we build intuitive models based on our observations that allow us to to complete the the equation there.
0: Right, but one area of um, of research of application for this where humans maybe are not so good, or the more kind of scientific. Uh, kind of either the pure sciences or I could think of the medical sciences where you get into something like physics where uh like you know something like relativity, quantum physics, really theoretical physics, where you know uh, we don't know exactly how causality works on on a small scale, or something like medicine where we have experiments that are um, that are pretty decent uh but you know we we we're still kind of shooting in the dark uh, over exactly what causes what?
1: right. I mean the, and there's there's the the classic you know correlation is not causation uh, that right. We, we sometimes struggle to to separate the wheat from the chaff there.
0: Yeah, so uh, this article says that uh, during the, the the coronavirus pandemic, many machine learning systems uh, began to fail because they'd been trained on statistical regularities instead of causal relations. And as life patterns changed, the accuracy of the model dropped so you know measuring okay if the virus comes into a particular area how do the how do the people react you know which is <laughs> very hard for a mathematical yeah, well, model that, that absolutely to, makes uh, sense
1: that, that that's a that's a classic you know we we have somewhat uh, that's a brittle model and you know if you change things more a little bit you yeah. can adapt to that but if you have a dramatic change like all of a sudden everybody's in lockdown uh that that yeah, that, that's, that's, that's it's not moving the goalposts, but it's, it's yeah. redefining the, the, the scenario so dramatically that uh, previous assumptions aren't going to hold up necessarily.
0: But as I read this, though, I think that's not just a causality problem. Um, it's, also like, it's also a complex systems problem where you're talking about human response, which is and, and each person is unimaginably complex, and then you have the groups of people, which are even more complex than that, so uh yeah so so I think it's it's not just the causality that um is it uh, are causing these models to get wrong but it was it's interesting example. Um so yeah let me see
1: Did did you find the name what? of the paper?
0: No no I I I had it up just a second ago which I'm like how come uh you know it should have it should have been. It should have been pretty simple.
1: Uh, we, um, we can put it in in post.
0: Oh, here it is. Here it is. Okay, it's cause. It's called towards causal representation learning. Um, yeah. So it's basically the idea is, first you figure out what the causal model look like. Looks like what causes what, and then you train the model in terms of like, well, how do they cause the different? How, how does A cause B? First, first the question is, does A cause B? Or does B cause A? Or does C cause A, which then causes also causes B? Um, so first you figure that stuff out, and then you train what, what those variables do to the different other variables. So can you use that in life? I mean, I feel like maybe you can.
1: We, we can try.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll try to look for a, a specific example, um, you know, as we use Bayesian inference and, and machine learning examples in, in different news stories. Maybe we'll try to come up with uh, next time. We'll try to figure out what our, our causal potential causal models might look like. Uh, that might be an interesting um, exercise. Very good. All right. Cool. I think we're ready to call it a day. Sounds good. That was our March news update. Never a great week. It'll feel the power. Uh-huh.